I want to welcome you guys. Um, all of us in here have had a people uh, in our life that we would consider great. Uh, we would say uh, this person is a, is a great person. And what we mean by that is they're, they're superior. There's something different about them. They represent something for us in our realm of existence that is incredibly encouraging. Um, the difference uh, with us is that we have different criteria for that. Some of you would say that a person is great because uh, they're, a great, um, they're great at communicating or they're, uh, they're phenomenal at loving others or they, they serve you well or they have a high level of integrity. We have a very different criteria based upon what's great. For me, there was a man in my life that was incredibly encouraging simply because of his courage. I'll put this picture up for me. Uh, that's... Baldy McGee, that's me over there on the right-hand side, um, rocking the red shorts, fighting the man, different color than everyone else there. Now, um, this was my quarterback coach in college. His name was Coach Hood. Um, he uh, passed away about a year ago and was one of um, my favorite men in the world. He was uh, a football coach in high school, bending over to pick up a cone one day, and a wide receiver ran a route and hit him in the back and drove his head into the ground and uh, ever since was in a wheelchair. So you would think that it would be very difficult for a man in a wheelchair to teach guys how to play quarterback in college. But that was what was different about this man. That's what made him great. In fact, I'm quoted here in this newspaper article there at the bottom. I say, he gets you to, th- uh, he gets you to do things on the football field you didn't know you could do before, all from a wheelchair. I can literally remember like so many days uh, bent over just like that with one hand on my helmet and the other knee on the ground and my other hand on his wheelchair as we just talked about life. My uh, offensive coordinator in college called called me a year ago and said, hey Mark, I just thought you'd be interested to know that Coach had passed away from complications of his health. In that moment, I just reflected on the greatness of the man that he was. You've all have had a man or a woman like that, that you would say they are great. They exemplify these particular kinds of characteristics. Well, tonight, listen, we have an amazing opportunity to wrestle with what is probably one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament. You're like, right on, this is going to be interesting, and it will be. But the whole center of our focus tonight will be on this concept of greatness. What I perceive culturally is a large disconnect with truly understanding what greatness is, the depth of which it dives, and how it can be an encouragement to us. So I want to pick up a little bit and help remind you where we've been in Hebrews. If you're just joining us, we teach through the Bible verse by verse. Some people think that's a bad idea because you come to difficult passages like we do tonight. They would say that it's easier just to skip over it. Unfortunately uh, for them, we believe that the Bible is best taught verse by verse so that you can't uh, skirt away from the difficult texts. We believe here that every passage is breathing the name of Jesus. And so if every passage is in fact doing that, then it all has very intentional purpose. Are we together? So we uh, started here in chapter 5 where we saw this man of mystery, Melchizedek, first mentioned in Hebrews 5 verse 7. Check this out. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, one of the strangest names in the scripture. scripture, Wouldn't recommend naming your son that, but here he is. I mentioned to you when we first read this, very difficult man to understand, a man of mystery in the scripture. You'll remember that this verse goes on to say very next. The writer says, of this topic I have much to say. But he says, it's going to be too hard for you to hear because you've become, as he puts it, dull in hearing. In other words, the writer of Hebrews recognizes that it will be incredibly difficult for his readers to understand this topic. So what does he do? He spends a long amount of time focused on Christians growing up, on them growing in maturity, owning their call, and pushing forward in the faith, so that he can say this in, in Hebrews 6. This is where we left off last week. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, 
having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He introduces it in chapter 5, goes on a rant about Christian maturity, reintroduces it so that now we could wrestle with it. Are we together? Now, I don't, I, don't, I don't know where you're all at in your faith. Some of you I know probably are just here for the church, for, in a church for the very first time. I'm incredibly blessed by that, so excited. I really believe tonight that no matter where you're at in your journey, that you'll be able to take this journey with us and to help you, to help us understand this man of mystery this weird passage, I've put a piece of paper uh, in all of your uh, seats there. So if you can grab that, grab a pen. I want to make sure every single person has one. There should be some either under your seats or kind of behind your seats. Um, if, you, if you don't have access to one, raise your hand so we can get you one. So you'll need a piece of paper and a pen. We're going to be asking ten questions. You guys need some? Here's some right here. There you go. There you go. Thanks. We're going to be asking 10 questions from these 10 verses. Again, one of the strangest, most difficult texts to understand in the New Testament. And the blessing for you is you'll get to walk out tonight, I believe, understanding it. So let's look here on the front of your paper, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. Let's read it all in its entirety so that we can get a grip of how just crazy it is, and then we'll dive into it. Here we go, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever, verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham, verse 6. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises, verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Quick question. Uh, This is probably not going to be your coffee conversation. Uh, You know what I'm saying? Like This isn't the verse that you're like... Okay, you don't find this in most devotionals. You know what I'm saying? Like Christian soup with a chicken soul, this isn't in there, right? Intense stuff. But listen, this has become for me um, a text that I, I entered in with great humility. And honestly, I was quite intimidated by it. I've spent the last several days just going back and forth between intimidation and revelation of God. And I will tell you this. The last couple days, this text for me has become one of the more beautiful I've seen in a while. And so if you take this journey with me, I just want to encourage you, it will be a blessing. Alright, so put up verse 1 here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. Now put a number 1 here over kings. And just underneath that, in your list of 10... Put next to the number one, our first question, our first of ten. When did Melchizedek meet Abraham? Well, this is going to launch an amazing story. But before we get there, a quick note on Abraham. For those of you that have a minimal biblical understanding, Abraham uh, is the, the benefactor of God's initial covenant with the Jewish people. Uh, the Jews are most represented through the Old Testament by Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, whose name later um, um, turns to Israel. It's by these three men that the, really the whole rest of the Old Testament, the Jewish people and all their ancestors are built on. But our question is, when does Melchizedek meet Abraham? Now listen, how many dudes are here tonight? Any men? Any dudes here? Okay, a few and many confused. I'm not sure why. Turn, um, listen, I'm telling you right now, if you're a dude right now, like this story I'm about to tell you of how these guys meet, it might be your favorite story in the Bible. Like there's a great chance outside of just the cross of Christ and an empty tomb, this might be your story. Check this out. And if you're a girl and you like the story, like I want to meet you afterwards. Like praise God, you know what I'm saying? Um, 
Now, listen to this. There are four kings in this area of the world called Mesopotamia that form a confederation. Uh, That simply means an alliance. Now, these four kings in their confederation make this proclamation to the other city-states, including city-states in this area of the world that Abraham is, that they're to pay a tax or a duty to basically reside in their land of power. Okay, So four kings in Mesopotamia are pretty much ruling this area of the world, and they're telling these city-states, you pay us. Well, that works well for 12 years. But then in year 13, the Scripture records in Genesis 14, there are five city-states, two of which are called Sodom and Gomorrah, which some of you may recognize because God destroys it, that they uh, say, oh, yeah, we're not going to pay that. Okay, so they form together, they come together and rebel against this, uh, this confederation which is telling them to pay. Uh, so typically as it happens in a kingdom, uh, anytime there's a group of people that say they're not going to pay what they're supposed to pay, that normally doesn't sit well with those in charge, right? And that's essentially the case in this story as well. These, uh, four, uh, these four kings who are all led uh, by this man named, and I, and I want to get it right, uh, Keter, uh, Keterlamer, Keterlamer is, is how it's pronounced. It's weird spelling in Genesis 14. Put up my map here. Basically what they do is they start heading south. So where you see that arrow beginning, they leave Mesopotamia, they gather their armies, and these four kings head south. Now where they're headed is to confront these five city-states who are refusing to pay. And so you'll see here the Mediterranean Sea is, is, is clearly marked, and if you can't read that, I'm sorry. Uh, just underneath the city of Dan there is a very small body of water. That's the Sea of Galilee. Just to the right of Mamre is, uh, is the Dead Sea. What they do is they travel all the way down to the right there of the Dead Sea, and they end up in the Valley of Siddim. Now along the way, they're destroying every village that they come to. Mass murder, they're killing, they're raping, they're pillaging. This is a big conquest all over not paying the duty, not paying the tax. Are we together? Well, here's what happens. They end up wiping these five city-states out in the Valley of Siddim. Uh, It kind of gets embarrassing for these five city-states, again, two of which are Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the scripture records that they're literally retreating in fear of these, uh, this confederation. And as they're retreating, they fall into tar pits, right? Like, I don't know, you know, I don't know if you have this dream in your mind of how you're going to die, okay? As for me and my house, I'd rather not retreat and fall into a tar pit. You know what I'm saying? Like, that has got to be one of the most humbling ways to die. Like, I'm retreating in fear, and then I fall into a pit of tar to my demise. Now, um, now this isn't really even the interesting part of the story. I mean, it's kind of interesting, but it's not our climax, certainly. What happens is, uh, there's this man that is a part of all of this area of the world in this battle named Lot. Now, Lot is Abraham's nephew. So a part of these confederation kings wiping out all these people is they're taking these people for their possession. Well, they take in their possession Abraham's nephew, Lot. Then this army starts to march north all the way up to Dan. But they pass by this area of the world called Mamre. Now the scripture records in Genesis 14 that in Mamre, that's where Abraham is. Abraham hears that his nephew has been taken. And this doesn't sit well with Abraham. And this is when as a dude, like your heart starts beating a little bit, right? We got a little kidnapping, right? We got a little revenge working here in, in, in one sense. Listen, the scripture says that Abraham rallies. Listen to this. 318 men. And the scripture says that these 318 men are, are trained in the, in the art of military. So like somehow Abraham has like a backyard militia. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and, and like I think some of you have this picture that Abraham is like the Old Testament Jesus. He's got long flowing hair. He's holding his staff. He's got nice you know, girly earrings and the wind's like blowing his hair. But in this picture... Old boy's got like a 318 person military in his backyard. Because that's, like, that's what the scripture says. He pretty much goes out. He says, boys, it is now go time, you know. And not to mention, Abraham's old. I mean, this dude is 85, 90 plus rallying these guys to battle to go get his nephew Lot. Come on, dudes, right? Is your heart pumping a little bit? If not, check yourself. Are you even a male? Now, now it'd be one thing to fight a battle as this army goes by you. So they hear, hey, they got my nephew, so let's... No, 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 that's not good enough. 
listen to this. They pursue this Confederation army for 125 miles all the way to Dan. 318 men. Now, this, uh, this army, Confederation of Four, they later become the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire. So these armies are no joke. And let me guarantee you, they have more than 318, all right? This is a massive onslaught of people. Well, here's what happens. Uh, Abraham gets there, and in his wisdom of being old, which, by the way, we love older folks here because they have much wisdom, amen, right? Some of you guys uh, need to uh, humble yourself a little bit and realize that the world doesn't revolve around your 20-year-old dome. Anyway, we'll save that for another night. In his wisdom, Abraham decides, you know what, I'm quite outnumbered here, so probably what would be good is, is, is we attack at night while these armies are sleeping. Well, the scripture records in Genesis 14 that that's just what happens. Abraham and his 318 take on these four armies, and the Bible says they win. Now, as a guy, like this, I dream this like every night, you know? Like, Somebody takes something that's mine, I get my boys, and we go to town. You know what I'm saying? Like, we show up, we knock on somebody's doorstep, and we say, no, that's not how we roll here. You know, like, let me show you how this works. That, isn't that every man's dream, right? No? Is it any chick's dream? Is that any of you females? Is that your dream? There we go. Thank you. Praise God. Guess I'll take you guys and these other dudes here. Now, now, listen to this. Listen to this. It's after this. That Abraham's still not satisfied. He literally, the scripture records, chases this army. After he's already defeated them, just to kind of rub it in a little bit potentially, he chases them another 50 miles to Damascus. All right? This is an amazing battle. And it's right after this. You're like, well, where's Melchizedek? Exactly. It's right after this that we meet him. So turn your paper over. Genesis chapter 14. Look here in verse 17 on the back of your page. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and here he is. And Melchizedek, excuse me, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now this is an interesting moment in the scripture. Uh, we uh, take the Lord's Supper here in memory of what Christ has done, remembering Jesus. We celebrate that uh, here in our context with bread and grape juice. So you're like, you're interested in thinking like, well, this is really, really interesting here. Uh, Abraham just won a great feat. And here you have this man of mystery showing up with bread and wine, almost as it's like, it's, it's like a victory meal of some sort. Very interesting. And then he says this. He was the priest of the Most High God in verse 19. And he blessed him, Abraham, blessed by Melchizedek, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this man of mystery shows up right here, right after Abram has just completely obliterated this army with 318 men in what we, I think, could all agree would be his moment of very potentially his greatest achievement on the earth. Can we agree? If you're a man and this happens to you, like this is going on a plaque on the wall. You know what I'm saying? The day that I beat this army with 318 men. I wish I saw more men like this. I wish I saw more men that were passionate and zealous about not themselves, but of the very specific mission that God would have for them. I wish I saw more men, even in our context, that in the depths of their heart, it, 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 their heart just, just continually pounded with a loyalty to their God that it drove the rest of their life. And that's what we see here in Abraham. A man that's a strong man, an honorable man, a man that is a leader, a man that, you know, by all of our regards here in the Scripture, is someone who's extremely focused on what God would have of him. Keep in mind, he's still a failure, Still lied a chapter ago about his wife being his wife. Still, at times, lacks in faith. But I wish and I long that in our context here, we're seeing more men like this. More men that haven't become feminized by a culture. More men that aren't watching TV shows that look at the portrayal of men and then think that's what a man looks like. You know what? Why don't you start modeling yourself after the Christ 
and after the men that were after his own heart, right? So I want to encourage you guys, especially you guys, with this picture. But this is where these two meet. Curious meeting point, isn't it? Now put, up, uh, put it back up my verse here. The second question I want to answer is, who is Melchizedek? So put a, a lime green two over your Melchizedek if you brought a color-appropriate pen. And, uh, and just put underneath that, who is Melchizedek? Well, he is not just a priest to the Most High God, as the Scripture records, but he's also a what? He's also a what? A priest and a what? And a king. Now that's largely significant. Listen. The writer is writing to a Jewish Christian audience who all understand the priestly order. And they know that in the Old Testament there is no such thing as a priest and a king. You either have a priest or you have a king. And so for Melchizedek to be both, there's something significant about that. It means he's separated from the rest of this line. His name literally means this. Uh, next slide. The Melech means king, and the Zedek means righteousness or justice. So he's the king of, of peace, of righteousness, of justice. This man of mystery. Now I want to say this about Melchizedek. I have a lot of conversations with people who argue about the Bible. I don't know if you have these as well. And it, they'll happen at random times. I'll be sitting in a coffee shop with my Bible open. Some will happen by. So you believe in that? You know that book there? Yeah, yeah, I, I do actually, and it always spurs some interesting conversation. I, I always, instead of going on the offensive like I, I fear some of you do, you instantly feel like you have an argument to fight, I, I just ask questions and, and initiate conversation. But what people's big beef with the scripture is that it doesn't make logical sense. You know, they want science, they want arithmetic, they want all the numbers to work properly. Uh, my problem with that is it actually makes complete logical sense. I've talked about it in many forms before, but let me just focus on one tonight. Listen. If Melchizedek is mentioned in three verses in Genesis 14, and then hundreds and hundreds of years later comes up in Psalm 110 by David, and then hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later comes up in Hebrews chapter 7, like there, there's a little bit in me that says that, that God is writing this. The, the fact that this random character comes up hundreds of years apart from each other tells me that the Scripture wasn't written by men, but it was written by God, inspired to be written through men, and that God has a plan, and it's unfolding in the, in the book, in the Bible. And so for me, I look at just even this Melchizedek character, and without understanding anything else, to me, he's proof that the Scripture's real. You wouldn't randomly, in Psalm 110, if you're David, throw in Melchizedek just for good measure, right? Like, how did that hear? You know, that sound good to your ears? Weird name, right? No, he throws it in with intentional purpose because God's writing the book. And you need to know things like that because people are always arguing with you. Well, the Bible can't be true. There's no historical evidence. What are you talking about? The Bible is filled with historical evidence about the, realities of, about the reality of these characters, including Christ himself. Now let's move on to verse 2. And to this Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, just like we saw, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Now, if you grew up in the church, you spend any time in the church, there always came this part of the service where the, the plate was passed. You guys remember this? And it was always kind of an interesting time for me because it was the moment where like, there was like all of this kind of pressure because everyone's watching like, are you going to put money into the golden plate? You know what I'm saying? It was like this really interesting thing. And my grandfather was always, always teaching me about the concept of the tithe, right? And that's our third question here. You can put a three over the tenth. And our question is simply this. What is the significance of one-tenth? Well, the, for the very reasons that I just described. That's one of the reasons why we don't pass the plate here. Rather, we want to see giving as, a, as the New Testament understanding of joy. And so we put the joy box in the back so that folks can give. Thank you. That folks can give as, uh, as God calls them to give generously. But this is interesting. The fact that Abraham gives a tenth. Well, later this is commanded. The tithe, the tenth. But here, there's been no commandment. So it, it's as if Abraham naturally in seeing who Melchizedek is, just spurred on in his heart 
gives, as the scripture records in Genesis 14, a tenth of everything. Now later we start to understand this Old Testament principle start to unravel and we see that this becomes a concept of giving. Not sharing with God, but giving back to God what's rightfully His. So the significance of a tenth year is largely significant simply because Abraham gives a tenth before there's even a tenth. He like creates the tithe in this moment. Gives back and it shows us this. That Abraham thinks Melchizedek is pretty important. Which is curious, isn't it, to any of you? That he thinks Melchizedek is pretty important after he has just ransacked a confederation army with 318 men. So imagine your greatest success in your life so far. What is it? All right, like think about it. Some of you, maybe it's graduation of some sort from high school or college or preschool, I'm not sure, but some kind of, some kind of massive accomplishment. Maybe it was in athletics or schooling or in your job you got some big raise think about like the moment of your greatest accomplishment how you felt what was going through your mind and your heart most of us in that moment are quite prone to think quite highly of ourselves now there, there may be that later moment where we're praising God when we remember that it's all under God's grace but that initial moment often reveals the depth of our heart and our pride when we start thinking we're pretty stinking cool so escalate that times whatever number you want to use here in conquering an entire four armies with 318 men. The propensity of Abraham to feel a tremendous amount of pride at this point, can we all agree, would be pretty high. But he still, in this moment, recognizes that there's someone greater than himself. Curious. Next slide. Verse 3 says this. He is without father, this is talking about Melchizedek, without father and mother, genealogy. Now, Now we start getting fun. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God... He continues a priest forever. Now, most of the heated debate among theologians, which all of you will be one after this evening, most of the heated debate among theologians is centered around this verse. So let's start here with the number four around genealogy. Let's ask this question here. If Melchizedek is without genealogy, where did he come from? So there's theories. Uh, He shows up. Like God's rolling the dice one day, and one day it just lands on Melchizedek. God, you know, essentially just incarnates Melchizedek on the earth. He doesn't come from anywhere except the hand of God because he's considered the priest of the Most High God. Um, That seems unlikely to me given the context. (laughs) To say that he's without father or mother, to say that he doesn't doesn't die or there's no um, end of his life, rather, focuses us on one huge point, and I need you to understand this. To a Jew who's learning in this moment about Melchizedek, which is largely important to the writer of Hebrews, to be a priest, there is a substantial connection to the line of Aaron and then the tribe of the Levites. In other words, every priest beginning with Aaron, all the way into the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., had to come from the line of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. So to begin to escalate the fact that Melchizedek has no genealogy, the scripture records no beginning and end of his life, it's as if to say what? He doesn't come from that line. Which to a Jewish Christian would have started rocking with their foundation. Hold on a second. You're telling me there's a priest in the scripture that doesn't come from the line of Aaron and what the writer of Hebrews and God overall through the scripture is saying exactly true. So it's not that he just appears on the scene. We see here no mention of his genealogy to escalate the fact that he doesn't come from Aaron. He is appointed by God. It's not his lineage that makes him a priest and a king. It's God's choosing. Are you with me? Huge point. Which brings us to number five, which is probably the most debated. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Question number five is, is Ismael Kizedek the pre-incarnate Christ? In other words, is Melchizedek Jesus in the Old Testament? That's what we're asking here. Now, there are some that believe That Melchizedek, by term, by uh, understanding, by title, is Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, My problem with that 
in particular is this word resembling. In the Greek, the word resembling means model. It, it means to represent. Uh, quickly, uh, how many of you guys like the Mills? You guys like the Mills, St. Louis Mills Mall? You guys like it? Uh, me, me and my house, uh, we, we really enjoy it. Uh, I take my kids there often. And the reason why we go, and maybe it's the reason why you go too, is because of Cabela's, most in particular. I am not a hunter. I hate hunting. Um, I hate fishing. I hate camping. I hate all of those things, really what Cabela is. I hate all of it, except, <laughs> except my kids love the fish tanks and the bears. You know what I mean? And so when we go to, when we go to the mills, it's a great opportunity to take my kids and, and Avery thinks they're really cool. My son Dawson wants to jump in and swim, you know, swim with them. It's like fun day with the, the catfish there, right? And then we go to the bears, and my son's face is always like, oh, like he's always doing that. I don't know why. And, um, but we love the mills. Then, then we go and ride the train. Uh, have you guys seen the train there at the mills? This thing that goes around? It literally costs you like a You have to take out a second mortgage. I mean, the thing, it costs like 20, 30 bucks a head, but um, really incredible. Now, uh, last night while we were on the train, I was noticing how all these stores, like they're now portraying what their clothes look like by photography. So you go by American Eagle, right? And all these, these models are scantily clothed in their scantily clothed clothing, right? Like that's just what's happening here. And, um, and then I got to one store, and I won't say it by name, Old Navy, um, that, that um, they didn't use photography at all. Uh, rather, what they were using, they, they went old school. Uh, they pulled out the old mannequin, right? And what was really interesting about these particular mannequins, and after we rode the train and I noticed it, we like went back by, is um, like these mannequins looked nothing like humans. I mean, it was like they had went to great effort to show how their clothes would look on aliens. Like, we're going we're gonna to put our clothes on things that don't even have limbs, and then we want you to imagine yourself wearing them. It was, it was incredibly strange, right? But, but the, purpose, the purpose of a mannequin in its old school days, for those of us that grew up in the days where there still were mannequins, is to show you what those clothes look like. They're not lifelike. They don't have beating hearts, but it's to show you what it will be like. Melchizedek isn't the pre-incarnate Christ. He's to show us what Christ will look like. Christ will both be a king and a priest. Christ will come at God's appointment, by God's choosing, not because of his genealogy, though there is significant genealogy with Jesus. Melchizedek is here in our Bible to show us what Jesus will look like. He's not Jesus in the flesh. He's a picture. Right? An image of it. And so I don't care what you know about the Scripture, or don't know about the Scripture, or what you know about Melchizedek, or don't, don't know about Melchizedek, but if Melchizedek is in the Bible to show us what Jesus looks like, can we agree that's significant? Can we agree that it's worth studying? Can we agree that even though he's a man of mystery and there's some certain uh, interesting facts surrounding him, we better have a good grasp of him? Are we together? Now, things get really interesting here in verse 4, and probably uh, one of my favorite verses here out of the context. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. What is he saying? Put, put, uh, put our next question up here. Put a six over how great. And let's ask this question. What is the point of Melchizedek's greatness? Now, if you don't understand the battle, you miss how great Melchizedek is. Abraham, 318 men, takes them out. Victorious, defeat. Abraham is a great man. What he's saying is, then how great is Melchizedek? If Abraham's great, then how much greater is Melchizedek? Because this is the whole picture of greatness in Abraham. Uh, how many of you are fans of Michael Jordan? Uh, you're like, who is he? And now I'm old, right? You guys don't know who Jordan is? It's like the greatest basketball player ever, right? Um, now, here, here's what's really interesting about Michael Jordan. Is right after he retired... Let me rephrase that. Right after he retired, played baseball, bad mistake, retired, came back, and retired again. Right after all that happened, literally instantly, every other basketball player would be compared to Michael Jordan. Have you seen this? So first it was Kobe, right? Like, is, is Kobe Bryant 
as good as Michael Jordan. And so if you've ever watched ESPN, have you seen that? Great show. If you've ever watched SportsCenter, right, the graphic is what? Here's all of Michael Jordan's stats, and here is all of Kobe Bryant's stats. Well, as for me and my house, Kobe Bryant, like, no dice, right? So Jordan remains. But, but then the next character is who? Is LeBron. Is LeBron Michael Jordan? Is he as great as Michael Jordan? And all of the stats would reveal that. Now, not that he's as great, but that's what we're looking for. Tiger Woods, have you heard of him? Pretty good golfer, okay? Any of you guys like golf? All right then. And so Tiger, phenomenal golfer. And did you guys know a couple weeks ago, a 21, 22-year-old guy won the U.S. Open? Have you heard this? So instantly, what is everyone saying? He's, is he the next Tiger? Listen, we have this obsession in our culture. Once we see something great, we want to see something greater. Like our search is never over. It's, it will never be over. We will forever be wondering if there will be another Michael Jordan. We will forever be wondering if there will be another Tiger Woods. We will forever be wondering, you insert, you know, some great writer. We'll forever be searching for the next best thing. That's our obsession to our fault. Because it causes a stigma in the hearts of followers of God to continue to search and look though the search should end. What the reality is here in Abraham and Melchizedek, as great as Abraham is in this moment in time, there's still one greater. And it causes Abraham to give a tenth of everything, to serve, to give over because he recognizes it. My question is, what happens when your search as a Christian continues? What happens when you're still looking for something that's greater? What happens when the search isn't over? To me, I would say it causes a pretty confused culture. All of you say that this God is so great and that He's so majestic and that He's so worthy and I see you guys come together and worship and do your songs and your raise hands, your raise hands things and then, then you have the audacity to tell me that it's possible for something to be greater. I feel like that's what culture would say of us. You say He's so great by term and then you don't act like it at all. So here we see a very pristine picture of a great man in Abraham and a greater image in Melchizedek which causes the great man in Abraham to bow and give over. Not bow in worship because he's a follower of God, but bow in humility in the giving of his tithe. Are we together? We're obsessed with the pursuit of greatness And here in our scripture, we see an awesome opportunity to grow out of that. Let's keep going. We'll come back to that. Verse 5 says this. And those descendants, this gets a little bit interesting. You're going to have to hang here with me. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Really wordy. Put up my next question here. Put a seven over commandment. The question is, is, if there is this commandment to tithe and has it resembles with Levi, what is the commandment? Well, turn over your paper again. In Numbers chapter 18, there on the back of your paper, starting in verse 21, here's where we see this commandment that the Scripture is talking about. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. Verse 22 so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. Verse 23, But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe, verse 24, of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Uh, Let's make sense of this, because I know you're confused. Listen. The commandment is this. There will be a priestly order and all of those priests will come through the line of Aaron and from the Israel tribe of Levi. There are 12 tribes. All the other tribes will get an inheritance of land. But there will be one tribe that will be paid through the tithes of people. And that's this priestly order. Are are you with me? So the commandment is this is they'll tithe, it will come to Levi, 
And because of that, it escalates the tithe of Abraham to Melchizedek. Next slide. Verse 6. But this man, who does not have his descent from the received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promise. Now, this is absolutely huge. Put up my next question. Verse 8. Or number 8, rather. Our question is this. Why does it matter what Melchizedek's descent is? Okay. Check this out. The Old Testament showing us how God shows the Israelites as His people. And then it shows us how even His chosen people will go astray. They will turn their backs on God, though they've seen the power of God over and over and over. They're God's people. Well, what happens is, and what this is pointing to is this, is if Melchizedek doesn't come from this descent, then what does it mean? Well, most people would say that the whole Old Testament is revealing of how salvation will come to the Jews. But in the very onset of the covenant in Genesis 12, and here in, uh, in the early parts of Genesis, we have this picture that, that actually God has come and is revealing Himself through Melchizedek, and it has no connection to Judaism. It is apart from that. And so we often think that, well, that, that theological or doctrinal term doesn't come until Paul says, neither Jew nor, nor Greek nor slave nor free, that we're all one in Christ. But here, allusion in the early parts of this whole covenantal system, you have the picture that God is for everyone. And so for those of you that are interested in understanding the Scripture holistically, you have to understand the Old Testament is our picture of our need for the grace of God as modeled by the Israelites, but also God's plan in sending Jesus for all people. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. I'm personally obsessed with this verse. We'll come back to it here in a moment. We'll end with the crazy verse 8 through 10. This gets kind of funny here. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You guys are going to Facebook that later. Now, what does this mean? How can Levi give tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham? Uh, well, Levi's not even present at this moment. He's yet to be born. Okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, tribes, Levitical tribe. So what he's saying is this. Is the very idea that you have of the priestly system and all of it coming through Levi, actually, Levi too tithed to Melchizedek because Levi will come from the ancestry of Abraham. And so by proxy then those tithes will go to Abraham as well. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? He's saying that what you believe, that all of this is actually separated in the very essence of what it is, it's connected. Levi is not separated from this. Levi as well is tithing because he gives through Abraham. Okay? Now, none of you are you're like, I don't care about that. It's still essential to understand our last point. Go back to verse 7. Yeah, uh, sorry, our question number nine was, uh, go back to that real quick so they can get it. Our question number nine was uh, simply, how can Levi pay tithes through Abraham? And uh, we just answered that. Now verse seven is where we're going to end tonight. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. You remember, Genesis 14, right after the battle, Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine, and then what does he say in verse 19 of Genesis 14? Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. I know many of you get frustrated with the Bible. Because you can't understand it. And you've spent all of three minutes reading it. You look at a verse... You'll read it one time, and then you'll sit there in frustration. Why can't I understand this? Have you prayed for God to show you what it means? 
You sought out any additional help? Have you had any conversations with brothers or sisters that you think might be able to pour wisdom into it? This is one of those passages that if you just read this 1 through 10, it would frustrate you. It frustrated me in the first read. You sit back, you're like, why is this even in the Bible? What is the point of all this? What does God have to show us through this mystery man, Melchizedek? And I believe it's right here. The superior blessing the inferior. Do you understand? Melchizedek is a superior man to Abraham. Tough for maybe us to see that. Tough for maybe us to understand that. But Abraham recognizes Melchizedek as just that, superior. And Abraham then tithes to him. If the President of the United States of America walks in this room and we knew he was coming, how many of you believe that he would walk in and start gallivanting around the room asking you if he could get you a, a cup of water? Or, you know, would you like some Doritos or some, uh, you know, and he would like hand you a nice wet cloth to wet the back of your neck. Like, would the President of the United States be walking in here serving you? Everything would have been set up so that when he walks in, he has a special seat and a special microphone and special secret service. He's considered superior in the eyes of the culture. And guess what? The inferior, uh, the inferior serve and bless the, the, the superior. Nowhere in any, in any religion, in any cultural understanding, does the superior bless the inferior. Are you with me? Nowhere. What we have here is the exact picture of the depth of God's love. If Melchizedek represents the Christ for us in the Old Testament, then the picture is this. He is far superior to you. He is God. He is all-faithful. He is unchanging. The depth of His love cannot even be fathomed. And yet He, in His grace, blesses the inferior. You don't deserve it. You, you can't merit it. But the superior blesses the inferior in you. And that, my friends, is mind and heart boggling. It doesn't make sense. Why would superior bless inferior? Because he loves so deeply that you can't even begin to understand it. And so here... All of a sudden in Hebrews, and then understanding the battle of, of Abraham, and then seeing Melchizedek's part, I sit back and say, there is one greater and only one. That's it. But many of you are looking elsewhere. Many of you have wandering eyes. In fact, you came in here, wandering eyes. If he is great, then why aren't you gazing if he is great, then why isn't your full attention in a constant gaze of the greatness of God? Why are you still looking? Why is it as if your search isn't over? Why are you still looking to the left and to the right? Why are you still asking culture to feed you something? Why are you still longing for your flesh to give you some semblance of power and respect? Let me tell you something. When you believe that there is one greater and only one, you gaze upon His greatness. You can't get your eyes off of it. That's why the Scripture says, fix your eyes on the prize. Look at Him. He's it. His greatness. You don't ever need to turn to the left or to the right. That's where you look. That's where you gaze. That's where you focus. So where is it for you tonight, huh? This is what's seemingly a random passage. And all of a sudden we find ourselves, like every verse does, at the greatness of God. The question that you have to ask yourself is, where are you looking? I know maybe by term or by mouth or by rhetoric that you would say, oh, God is so great, so good, I love Him so much. Listen, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Or has it just found its way into your head after so much pounding? What happens when you believe it? Then all of your gaze and all of your attention and all of your focus comes on a God who in His superiority has been gracious to the inferior. So look, I'm straight up. I was intimidated by this passage. It's a tough passage. 
and I walk away, and I'm serious. And I was, I was telling the guys in between the service. Sometimes for me, it's frustrating as a teacher because I, you know, I've spent time studying and God has wrecked my heart over this and I just long for people to get it. And I get frustrated sometimes when they don't and I shouldn't because I can't expect all of you just to walk in and all of a sudden, boom, Melchizedek and God just moves your heart. But let me tell you this, I walk away from this passage and I say, how can I run from this God? How can I not sit in awe of a loving God who in his superiority has sought me out as inferior and blessed me and been gracious to me, though I'm undeserving? I sit back from this crazy passage that makes us maybe sound like theologians, and I say, praise be to God. There is no one greater. I want no one else. Just give me Jesus. I don't need culture. I don't need the lust of my eyes. I don't need some substance abuse issue. I don't need a stinking relationship. I don't need anything. I don't need my kids. I don't need my wife. All I need is the greatness of God. And anything else that comes is complete mercy. And yet we're like looking around. The revelation of a church and a people that sit in awe of the greatness of God, their gaze never loses focus. Because they're constantly standing in awe of the reality of who God is. Let's stand together. had a conversation one time with a buddy believer good friend of mine he said Mark how do you think that people will know that we really believe in God how do you think people will ever really believe in us that we truly truly believe and I've walked away from that conversation continually thinking about that question how will people ever see in us that we truly believe And after this passage, I firmly believe in all of my heart that it's because of my gaze. In times of tragedy, where will I look? Will I be looking for some help of a human initially? Will I be looking at the works of my hands, my own abilities, or will I look to Him? In moments of great joy, where is my gaze? Whose greatness am I looking at? In moments of phenomenal success like Abraham had, am I looking in the mirror and saying, Oh Mark, you're so good. Or am I on my face saying, You're good, you're holy, you're righteous. All I have is all that you are. There's no need to look anywhere else.